on the panel, RNZ National, nice to have your company, Fred Kublowski and Linda Hallinan with me this afternoon. Chris says, go Linda, the Royals reinforce the British caste system and we don't need the Queen as our head of state. Not on gardening. I live in Makara near Wellington and no way would I be able to support myself on homegrown veggies at an economical price. I have to carefully select a small selection of veggies that I know will do well given the climate and conditions. I can break even, but that's it. And regarding what Fred was saying, I'm in the film industry and for all the people that have disappeared over COVID, there's a whole world of young ones just waiting for the opportunity. Thanks for your company this afternoon. Kids' vaccines are slow on the uptake. Kate Newton and stuff has been crunching some numbers, makes for fascinating reading, that while New Zealand has achieved some remarkable vaccination rates in the initial stages, you know, 95% of the eligible population seeing the first two doses, the same cannot be said for our tamariki. Just over half of children 5 to 11 have had a first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. In numbers, that is 257,400 out of an estimated 476,300 children. Well, Dr. Danny Delore is a paediatrician based in Rotorua, chair of the Indigenous Child Health Working Group. Dr. Delore Tinakwe, welcome. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, um... Great to have you on, uh, Danny. Look, these figures, are they a surprise to you? I don't think it's surprising that the numbers are tailing off now, Wallace, because the paediatric vaccine has been available for a couple of months now, and probably a lot of the parents and caregivers who who have decided to well, that their child is going to have the vaccine have done it already. And we, we have seen similar percentages in countries we like to compare ourselves with, mm. Australia, Canada, and we're, we're actually ahead of a lot of other countries in Europe and, and the US, for example. Okay, so really we're not doing too badly regarding vaccinations from the ages of 5 to 11. Well, we didn't set any targets, and that's mm. because I think it's less clear, you know, it's always been less clear for, for young children um, about the the risk versus benefit. We know that there is benefits from the vaccines for the community and for those children, but it's not as clear, for example, um, as it is for an older adult, where you, your chance of getting really sick, going to ICU, or, or, or worse, from COVID-19, that's pretty clear. It's a pretty clear choice that the vaccine is very much in your favour. And that's, that's harder for children, harder for parents to make that decision for their child because the majority of children, they won't end up in hospital or ICU. No. Also announced yesterday, uh, then the government will drop vaccine mandates for you know, teachers' early childcare. What, what are your views around that? Uh, well, well, I think you know, we want to do as much as we can to protect all of our tamariki and all of the people that they're around in our communities. Uh, there's competing interests here because we know we want young children, we want tamariki to be at uh, kohanga, at ECE, at schools because uh, it's really good for them to be there. Um, but there are some practicalities about it. So, look, I, um, there's arguments both ways for the mandates. Um, yeah, all right. Let's bring our panellists, eh? Let's, uh, well, Linda Helen, what uh, uh, thoughts and comments do you have on this? 
Well, you know, both of my children are primary school aged and they've had their first dose, which we got as soon as we could, but they're due for their second one. Um, one of them is due tomorrow and the one oh, of them is due oh. two days after that. However, one of them is homesick at the moment and that's a complication, which means he's either got COVID or he won't be um, He won't be in any fit state to be vaccinated. And I think lots of kids, you know, obviously it's a complication that they're back at school. So it's not convenient. You've got to wait till the weekend. There's lots of after-school activities have started up again. And heaps of kids have had COVID and therefore, I guess, won't be getting vaccinated in such a hurry because, yeah, it's hard, I guess, for some parents to see any real reason to do so. Danny? Hmm. Uh, yeah, my kids are the same. They were Jews, their second vaccine, and they all got COVID just the same week, just before they could get it. And one of them had no symptoms, and two of them were, were really sick. They were in bed for a couple of days with high fevers and not eating. So, look, I really, if, the, if they'd had their second one, I suspect they wouldn't have been so unwell. So if, if you're due, you're, if you haven't had your first, go and get it. If you're due your second, do that now, unless you've had COVID already. So really uh, a message being, adv- advice being don't, don't delay if you can. And don't delay, no. Yeah. Uh, Fred? Um, well, I, I can't really speak from a place of experience. I don't have any tamariki uh, of my own. But I, I question, Danny, uh, how does the numbers for the COVID vaccine sort of compare to the other pediatric vaccines that might be administered around that age group? Uh, are the percentages vastly different? Um, well, for our other scheduled vaccines, so that's the MMR and uh, diphtheria, pertussis, et cetera, we aim for 95% coverage at two years and in most ages we want 95 percent coverage to give really good protection for everybody um we have got close to that in the past but over the last two years it's really slipped back so unfortunately our general scheduled immunizations have dropped back and more like depending on where you live more like in the 70s and 80s now and depending what ethnicity you are as well so uh, and that's actually a big concern because um, pertussis is likely to come this year. We're going to have influenza and we could have measles outbreaks as well. So look, the, the COVID vaccination rates are a little behind those ones um, and, and those scheduled ones are behind where we'd like, to, like them to be as well. Mm. And just finally, uh, Dr. Law, uh, and you're based in Rotorua, how are things faring there at the, uh, at the DHB and, as we say, coming into winter? Uh, look, we're, I've, we've, I've, we've been admitting young children with COVID and they've had typically staying in hospital for a day or two, but it is, can be serious illness. The hospital, I think, is holding up pretty well, but we always feel like um, you know, people are working really hard to achieve that. And uh, a lot of us are anxious about what's going to happen over the next month and the ne- over the next year, particularly with these other preventable diseases where our vaccination rates have got low. And... And you probably aware in Rotorua, we have high proportion of Māori children. And the, the rates for Māori children are still well behind non-Māori. So that is a big, big issue for us in Rotorua and a lot of the, well, for the country, actually, but a lot of the places, particularly where there's high, high proportion of Māori and Pacific children. Kia ora, Dr. Delore, and very nice to have you on the programme. Thank you. That is uh, Danny Delore. He's a paediatrician based in Rotorua, chair of the Indigenous Child Health Working Group. And your whanau, Linda, they came through it okay? All is, uh, all is well at the no, moment? No, we haven't actually... We haven't actually caught COVID yet, yeah. but we are, <laughs> we're quite lucky, I guess. We're isolated in a fairly rural area, but we've yeah. been testing quite a bit because, you know, most of the kids at school are going down with tummy bugs and colds and flus mm. just from being around each other again. And I think 
that's a difficult thing because you know it's become almost like a, a, a no it's not funny but it's almost laughable how often the kids are coming home with runny noses and things that are separate to COVID and we're testing them and that they, they see us coming with the cotton buds now and they're not particularly keen on it but yeah it's just no. part of life isn't it that kids get sick <laughs> uh here's a message here we live in we, we live rurally in the Waikato it's very hard to get our kids from school to vaccination centers before 4 30. we tried on the weekend to go to Matamata only to find no vaccination center at the address texted to us and the helpline had no idea where to go we're trying again on Friday it has been a frustrating process mm. Mm. you're on the panel uh, NZ National Fred Kubalski first time on the program and Linda Helenan with me this afternoon well, for those of us who have experienced the agony of a toothache, we know how all-consuming it can be, both in our mouths and from our back pockets. Children can access free visits, dentist visits, until they're 18, but after that, the expense means some people put off going for checkups. The government has vowed to tackle poor access to oral health, but yet we were yet to see any meaningful results. So could universal dental care be a solution. We discussed this the other day with uh, Max Harris. He brought it up as his eye been thinking. But to the politics of it, because we talked to uh, the Dental Association before on this and other, uh, those practitioners in the field, on another angle, Dr. Bryce Edwards, he's a politics lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington. He's written quite a strong opinion piece on this. Dr. Edwards, kia ora, welcome uh, to the program. Kia ora, thanks. First of all, I want to I want to just bring in the politics. Of it. it feels like we have been talking about this for so many years. I'm thinking right back to uh, Jim Manson. I can recall uh, the president of the New Zealand Dental Association saying that wins you can get three hundred dollars uh, to help with your dental costs. That hasn't changed in twenty five years. Why is this issue? Why is this one issue, Bryce, so politically? In the quagmire? Well, we do have a rotten dental system, and um, I just don't know if there's the political will at the moment. I mean, the problem is that if we wanted to make it universal, it would be expensive. It would be up to a billion dollars a year. Uh, the Ministry of Health had done some calculations. They thought it would be about 650 million, but it might be more. And of course, politicians have to weigh these things up, they have to prioritise what they really want to fund. And of course, yeah, this current government has got a lot to pay for, um, and they're deciding on some other things. So that's really the quagmire. Um, I guess that's what politics is about. It's about deciding what our priorities are. I personally think that uh, when they're committing to spend 10 or 20 billion more on the military in the next decade, um, when they're spending lots of other things on some projects, it doesn't really feel to me that the need is as great as what we have at the moment with vast inequality. You've weighed in pretty strongly on this, so you're on the side of yeah. uh, universal dental care. And I want to ask our listeners across the Mōtū uh, this afternoon, is it time to get rid of New Zealand's user-pay system and bring it entirely under the public hospital system? You can text me at 2101. I want to gauge support on this. And before we uh, go on, I just want to we, – we, so we've been, the panel's been around the country for a scale and clean, uh, how much it costs – uh, and what have we got? So in Auckland, um, you've got $210 for a scale and clean, pricey. Wellington, $208. Again, a couple hundred bucks 
very expensive, just for a clean and polish. Christchurch, 187 in Whangarei, $94, a little bit more affordable. In Gisborne, you've got 145 bucks. Temaru, the best place in the country we could find to get a scale and clean bit of a hygiene for $92. Let's go around the panel on this and ask their thoughts, questions for Bryce, but also Fred, what do you think? Time for, once and for all, universal dental health care. Yeah, it's a... Um... I think dental health care is, is hugely important, isn't it? That um, bad, bad dental health leads on to all kinds of um, bad general health and probably ends up costing the um, health system um, quite a lot. Bryce, so you, you, you don't think that this could be something that would be included in this year's budget? Look, I would love it if it was. Um, and we do know that the government want to start um, uh, fixing that inequality problem. And this would just be such a good way to do it. They still have got a few billion up their sleeves from uh, where they need to expand in the budget. So, yes, I would hope on that, especially because they're currently restructuring the health system. So now is the best time, I think, if they wanted to bring it in to to spend those dollars. Yep. Linda? I can never understand why we took dental clinics away from schools in the first place. You know, I mean, one of the problems with accessing good dental care is physical like actually getting to a dentist and when kids are all getting the prevention rather than the cure at school you know it made perfect sense and I guess it was just one of those cost-cutting um ideological driven decisions you know to to take them out of schools and to make it part of the public health system but I mean it's supposedly free but I've always had to pay because you need to see you know a dentist when the tooth is hurting which isn't necessarily the annual appointment you get at the school dental clinic. No, you know, some it's, would it's say really some, some would say, Bryce, you know, free dental care up to eighteen. Isn't that enough? Yeah, I guess that's the compromise we have arrived at. But in other countries, they have much more generous schemes. Um, I'm not really sure that um, <laughs> you know a poor person just because they're over the age of eighteen as suddenly, you know, it's right for them to chuck them into the user pays private sector market. It just means they are not getting their teeth looked at. It means that they create, you know, bigger problems that they then have to end up in ED over. Um, I just don't know why teeth are different to the rest of the body. I mean, the public health system looks after every other element of our body, but it's just not a teeth. historical <laughs> anomaly. But not teeth, no. no. <laughs> when, you think of it, when you think of it like that, it's quite Oh, yeah, keep going, Linda. Uh, one of the problems, too, with this, it's a fallacy that everybody's getting free dental care, um, you know, as children, because the COVID lockdowns have resulted in a massive backlog. And as far as I know, I don't know anyone who's had a school appointment, just a scheduled appointment in the last two years. One of my kids has never seen the school dentist. They've never been able to get an appointment. And that's the thing. I think we're, we're dreaming if we think that all these kids are getting publicly funded dental care. Okay, so Bryce, mm. uh, I just want to, again, uh, back to the politics of it. Uh, yeah. Say uh, either Labour, National Bloc, whatever, decided to actually surprise us in May with some sort of big announcement around it. I mean, they haven't even uh, – three. it's been 300 bucks from wins for 25 years. They were – they they did announce, didn't they, a couple of years ago, Labour, that it was going to go up to $1,000. Am I correct in saying that hasn't happened yet? That is correct. So we're talking about the uh, the grants that are given to beneficiaries right. who just can't afford it. That's currently three hundred dollars 
Labour, I think, promised at the last election to increase that to 1,000. They haven't yet done that, so I imagine that will come in this budget. But, you know, it's actually Labour Party policy to make dental care universal, to make it part of the public system. Yes, it is. They passed that um, at a conference back in 2018, once they were in government. And it's really just a question of them implementing that finally. In terms of legacy politics, then, if they did this, would it be a vote winner? Would it be something that could be on the table? Look, I mean, you think back to the first Labour government and what historic legacies they left in terms of a public health system, it would be on par with something like that, wouldn't it? So, yes, we haven't seen a lot of transformation, apart from in the COVID area, uh, from this government. So I think they are looking around for something to to do. And uh, this would uh, be something that Ardern, uh, the Minister of Health, Minister of uh, Finance, could leave as something for people to smile about. All right, nice one. Bryce, kia ora. That is Dr. Bryce Edwards there, um, uh, who wrote a very strongly worded opinion piece on that. And look, there is so much response, I can't even get through uh, uh, even a portion of it. Uh, it's extraordinary, but there seems to be, just what I'm reading through right now, uh, a huge and overwhelming support for universal uh, dental care in Aotearoa. That is uh, taking it away from generally what is seen to be a user pay system and bringing it under the public hospital system. Very interesting, uh, isn't it, Fred? Uh, what about your uh, dental health journey? Have we all have issues, don't we? It's uh, and it is pricey to uh, even go for a checkup. Yeah, uh, look, I've I've had a, a a long and interesting journey. I actually came from Poland as a child in the 80s, uh, and I, I bought a few cavities with me, um, mm. and I had a lot of fun at the local school dental nurses with the um, sort of chain-driven uh, drills and whatnot, and I ended up with a lovely set of amalgams, uh, really? most of which are actually still okay. And uh, But I've been fairly uh, assiduous with my dental care since then. But, you know, it's, uh, it's always a, a, a shock when uh, suddenly there's a several hundred dollars well it's several hundred dollars a year regardless of if anything's um, wrong or not but the odd uh, the odd uh, cavity or crown and when you're looking at thousands it's it really is terrifying it's it's interesting bringing it under the hospital system because it is such a privatized um industry i just wonder how that would um how that would play out you know and whether you'd have problems where um you know sort of private industry public money um you know uh there'd be conflicts yeah. Uh, look, thank you very much for all your responses. So we, we might even come back to this uh, story, actually, but uh, uh, I'll uh, read out a sort of a small portion uh, after the headlines. But to this, I want to get to this because um, uh, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating, actually. Last week, Dr. Ella Henry came onto this show and said that in response to the rising cost of food, part of the answer could be to grow your own veggies, that we need to learn how to do this and really... It isn't that hard. And so Virginia Fallon's article today caught my eye in which she argues veggie gardens as a solution to our food crisis. Nah, not digging it. Her words. Who was saying that for weeks she tried to nurture her garden. What did she get? <coughs> One piece of fruit. And I'm thinking about, I'm actually looking at my garden right there. What have I got? I've got one green bean, 10 mini tomatoes, and I pulled out a small beetroot. Nothing. Linda's laughing, but you've got to see it. It's miserable. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, Linda. You start on this. Is growing your own garden the answer, or is that shaming people? 
Oh, 100% it's shaming people. It's easy to grow your own food, but it isn't easy to grow the food you or your family actually want to eat. That is fundamental. Um, first of all, you need housing security, you need a nice landlord, and you need to know that you're going to be in that home for long enough to actually see it right through from sowing to harvesting. Mm. And I think those of us who own our own homes, we just we can take that for granted, but nobody else can. Well, that has blown me away, Ryan, because I thought as mm. the former editor of the New Zealand Gardener, you would you you would actually jump in uh, at warts and all and go, you can absolutely grow your own garden and feed your family. But here you're saying the opposite. Well, you can. I mean, you can grow the unsexy things. Like I'm, I always grow potatoes, pumpkins, cherry tomatoes, things like salad greens. But, you know, I use onions every day and you can buy them for about $1 to $2 okay, a then. kilo and you sure as hell can't grow them for that. What like, about – what about, what about uh, uh, I'm just terrible. I can't even grow anything. But what about my father who on a – not even a salary, a stipend, uh, 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 aided – food on the table by borrowing some land, composting it, he was able to grow a quarter of an acre of corn. We had corn forever. How, Linda, (laughs) is that generation able to do that and I can't? Well, I guess people had more access to growing space. You know, most people had a backyard, whether it was their home or not, that, that backyard had a section and people were allowed to dig it over. It was a fact of life. Whereas honestly, these days, I, I mean, I've had the Landlords Federation ask me to speak to them and what they want to know is how to improve the value of their property. And when you suggest to them that, hey, maybe you could let your tenants grow food, they look horrified. What? I mean, I mean really? that's one of the fa- that's a Of course, it's a fact because actually people who have investment properties are just really not keen on their tenants digging them up and putting in messy vegetable gardens. Some will be, not all landlords, I should say. Um, But the one thing that I would say is really in the favour of growing your own food is that you reduce waste dramatically. So you don't throw food away because you leave it in the garden until it's ready. And that's the one thing I certainly noticed during the first lockdown is that we just threw no food away because we just picked it rather than buying it. Fred, you've got a garden or is it shaming? Um, well, uh, I, I do for the first time, I actually have a very uh, friendly landlord and we've managed to knock up a couple of square metre boxes out the back. Uh, before that, I had a little adventures with pots. So, yeah, I've, I've grown some tomatoes that I'm actually quite proud of and a few adventures, herbs and a, a, a habanero chili. Adventures with what? With, uh, with, with pots, uh, garden oh, and pots. pots. So, you know, tomatoes yeah. and pots, yeah. It's the first time I've actually had a, a, a box garden. But I couldn't agree with Linda more regarding this sort of access and the privilege of actually being able to, to put uh, plants in the ground, and that's not accessible to everyone. What, I, I, I'd love to see a sort of uh, the idea of community gardens maybe growing a bit mm. more in New Zealand, somewhere you can walk to, uh, a bit like the allotments in, in Europe, you know, where... Uh, there's, uh, everyone gets a few square metres and can dig it up and compost it and plant it and meet there on the weekends and That's a, good a idea. bit of a community vibe. Um, you know, I'd, I'd probably uh, be uh, shouted at for saying this, but there's an awful lot of green lawn out there that gets mowed for, um, well, for sports and for other activities and, and, and not, not much community garden. And I just wonder if the people who are out there could, could, could uh, be given access to something like that. What are you suggesting that New Zealanders should dig up the rubber? No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, but I'm just saying a, a striking a balance would be uh, would be interesting. Not everyone plays rugby. 
Good on you. All right, uh, Fred Kublowski and Linda Helen are with me on the panel. Uh, thank you so much for your response to us this afternoon. To come on the program, uh, we talk about uh, pet care. The cost of living for some families have got, has gotten so high they're actually making their family a little smaller, getting rid of their pets. But for now, it's time for headlines. <laughs>